Jim Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to Lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, good morning. How you doing? Welcome to the show. It's uh, January 7th. Excuse me. January 7th, and I'm sniffling along with a whole bunch of other folks. Uh, In uh, two hours, there will be hundreds of gun-toting, I'm assuming white men, (laughs) mostly white men, uh, a few blocks from here uh, in front of the uh, city-county building, uh, demonstrating their Second Amendment right to act like assholes, I guess. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, first of all, I I imagine that this crowd's going to be overwhelmingly white. Uh, more white than male. But white male mostly. And I just try to imagine if I were to have said in two hours hundreds of gun-toting black men will be in the street just a few blocks from here. Um, I really think a a great way to shut down the, uh, the NRA is for black men <laughs> to join up and suit up. And because, um, you know, a black man with a gun is uh, perceived as a, a true threat, right, for most people. A white guy with a gun, we are being schooled by the white guys with guns who are going to be here, uh, are to be looked at as our saviors. Uh, the head of this... Uh, of this demonstration, a guy from Erie, Pennsylvania, is uh, is quoted as saying uh, in the paper this morning that the block in front of the city county building with all those gun toters uh, at noon will be the safest place in Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, I don't agree with that. I think a lot of people don't agree with that. The uh, CAPA, the uh, High School for the Creative and Performing Arts, which is located downtown, um, is going to be in a sort of a partial shutdown <laughs> while the rally's going on. So clearly the uh, the people there do not perceive it as a um, as a safe place. I also am aware that uh, some of the corporations uh, that are in the skyscrapers surrounding the city-county building have informed their employees that uh, if they can work from home today, it would be best. And um, putting up signage, making clear that their buildings are not... uh, are are not welcoming to people with uh, firearms. I, I I don't know America. What a crazy crazy turn we took. I'm aware there's there was another shooting, um, this one in a bowling alley in California, and I thought I saw a headline today saying that police were looking for the I and I realized I haven't even bothered to look at any account of of that because first of all I, I I believe it was just three people killed that's like nothing that doesn't get our attention and um I was a little surprised because I always assume that people who do those killings end up dead themselves usually by their own hand and I, oh no Here's somebody saying, I can barely hear you. (laughs) 
okay, I'm low energy today. I, I, I can, I mean, I didn't realize how low energy I was till I started talking. And I, I actually think I'm, my own volume is, <laughs> is depressed today. Uh, that which is emanating directly uh, from me. Uh, so... Well, now, wait a minute. Russ, who sent me this, says, Happy Monday to you. I can barely hear you. Callers come in loud and clear, but I have to jack up the volume to hear you. I haven't had any callers. Huh? You can hear? I don't get it. Are you guys, like, trolling us? Have a great day. I don't think he is, but, but uh, whatever. I am low energy. I think I'm heading into one of those, I got to do a break or something. I, I don't know why. I thought I was doing pretty well. Uh, but <laughs> oh, it, all, I, it all has to do with you-know-who and uh, the state of our nation and my ability to sort of keep it at bay. Uh, I, I just have a stuff here. The, the shutdown, I mean, uh, the big stories to me today are the gun rally here because I, I find it so, uh, everybody else is saying they can hear me. Let's just stop. Um, the shutdown. So if it continues throughout the week, uh, it will be the longest uh, government shutdown in American history. I mean, I could talk about stuff going on in Washington, D.C. right now and or stuff not going on in Washington, D.C. right now, but I really, you know what, I don't want to. It's not that I'm not aware of it. Um, so it just seems that what's the point, right? We know what we have to do. Everybody's telling me it's fine. Um, so Hamilton is here now, the musical, and uh, I will not see it. I, I not not as a statement of any kind, but just because I didn't bother to enter the scrum for uh, getting overpriced tickets. I um. I'm sort of offended by the whole Broadway thing and what it's become and the scarcity of, uh, of affordable tickets for people. And uh, even when they take it on the road and come here, for instance, the same kind of, uh, of thing. I, my, my sense is that even though Hamilton was um, uh, very much sort of revolutionary uh, in terms of Broadway musicals and uh, certainly uh, I think brought rap to the uh, truly a different audience and a mainstream audience and let them finally start to see how astonishing rap can be. Um, the racial aspect of Hamilton with all these white historical figures being played by uh, actors of color. And, uh, and yet there's something about me that just hates jumping on bandwagon so that the more I saw how hard it was to get in to see it and how many people wanted to, and how tickets were selling for thousands of dollars, the more I thought, screw it. And I know my niece finally got to see it in uh, Chicago and was underwhelmed. And I think that would be my what would happen to me too, by virtue, again, of it, the, the extraordinary hype and the fact that 
we've all sort of heard it and or seen parts of it already. It became so famous. But I wanted to tell you that uh, over the weekend in New York City, there was a reading of a play. This is often a way to attract investors uh, to get attention so that it ends up in the paper and somebody like me in Pittsburgh starts talking about this play that there was a reading of. And th the play um, is uh, the work of a guy named Ishmael Reed and he was one of those MacArthur genius grantees uh, in 98. He has also been, I guess, uh, nominated for all kinds of other honors uh, based on his writing, the National Book Award and stuff like that. Anyway, so Ishmael Reed has written a uh, play that um, is titled let me let me find the title. Sort of says it all. The Haunting of Lynn Manuel Miranda. Lynn Manuel Mar Miranda, of course, the um, the author and the star, the initial star of uh, Hamilton. He's the guy who created this juggernaut. And the play that was read in uh, New York City on the Lower East Side um, is described as being about a playwright, I guess Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is misled by a historian of white history into believing that Alexander Hamilton was an abolitionist. And Apparently, what this new play attempts to do is write what th its author considers the absolute historical uh, misrepresentations in the musical Hamilton, specifically uh, portraying Hamilton as a uh, ardent abolitionist when. Um, when Ishmael Reed, uh, or the guy who's directing it, says, I mean, I, you could make a, a, a strong a case that uh, Hamilton was a slave trader. So I didn't realize that there was all this, with all I read about, uh, ooh, ah, and, you know, raves about Hamilton, I, I, I was unaware that there are academics and historians who have uh, long criticized uh, the musical for glossing over uh, the role that slavery played in, uh, in that period. And, uh, and they've taken um, umbrage at the uh, way Alexander Hamilton has been uh, portrayed. I don't pretend to know, but it makes me more curious. And since I'm aware that the play was, the musical was based on uh, this Hamilton biography by Ron Chernow, right? That um, maybe he's the one who, as this other play suggests, misled Lin Manuel Nori uh, Noriega, <laughs> Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> hey, speaking of Noriega, I want wait wait a minute. That's Nicaragua, but I want to go next door to El Salvador. This has been in my head for a long time. See if I'm going to remember. Do you remember uh, the freedom fighter in El Salvador who finally, I guess, prevailed amazingly? Uh, but he was viewed by the uh, left as, uh, you know, this e extraordinary uh, revolutionary, uh, Daniel. Ortega, right? I see his name every once in a while, you know, in some story about El Salvador. I think I'm getting all these names right. And I'm always taken aback because as I 
remember him, he was like a, a figure to be uh, lauded. He was uh, t attempting to take down the bad guys. And uh, and then I, he actually won election at some point. This is decades, decades, decades struggle. But he is now the head. He's the president of El Salvador, I guess. Yeah? Do I have the state right? I think so. And has been for a long, long time. And El Salvador, you'll recall, is one of those countries that is in turmoil that a lot of folks are fleeing, right, with their children and uh, trying to get to safety <laughs> in the United States. Somebody tell them to come to Grant Street in front of the city-county building, the safest place in the world, apparently, just in an hour and a half. You want safety? Give me your tired, your poor, your El Salvadoran, Guatemalans, Hondurans racing north. Just over to Grant Street, Pittsburgh, PA. Seriously. Um, Daniel Ortega is is like now like a bad guy. I mean, he's like really a bad guy. Everything I read is he is a autocrat. He's a son of a bitch. And that country is in unbelievable turmoil. Somebody help me here. This darling of the lefties, sort of like Cesar Chavez, right? Some of these uh, lefty darlings, when they get power, become so extraordinarily autocratic. I'll throw Fidel in there just to rile up a few other people. Seriously, though. And I haven't heard anybody mention or explain to me what the hell happened to Daniel Ortega since we're now finding out that Alexander Hamilton might not... I mean, that's hundreds of years ago. That we should be able... It, Ortega's in my lifetime where I thought he was this wondrous, uh, you know, freedom fighter. And now he's, he's just a son of a bitch with power. Do I have this wrong? Anybody else been noticing that? Because I, I, I just, I do, and I've never brought it up because I think who gives a shit, right? We don't care about no El Salvador. We can barely keep up with that, what's, what, what's happening in our country, right? I wouldn't have even thought of it if I hadn't said um, Noriega incorrectly and found myself in Central America by virtue of saying Noriega, but uh, not quite in the right country. Anyway, boy, I am doing some serious uh, stream of consciousness here today, aren't I? Well, bear with me. Okay. Have you heard that I was talk well, I was talking to a friend. We have a caller. Okay. Remind me to pick this up. I was talking to a friend about uh uh cash. That's it. Okay, money, 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 money. Let's uh just remember that because I my the state of my mind is such that in another 10 seconds I will not remember it. Uh caller, hi. Hello. Hi there. Hey. Hey, Lynn. On Friday, you had that guy on. Joe. Now, this is, uh, yes. And I'm, yeah. And it's story of two different worlds. I didn't find the, the union like he said it was. Now, his union might be that way, but if anybody would have uh, threatened somebody with bodily harm, uh, throw somebody off a roof, uh, that person would have been off the roof or been fired. So that didn't happen when I worked, worked in unions. I mean, and another thing that happened that people always say they call them blue-collar workers. I always say they're blue-collar workers with white-collar educations because 50% of the people that worked in factories, this is such a myth that they say these are uneducated people, can't do anything else. Most of them had college degrees. They were teachers. They were engineers. They had master's degree. Um, there was vocational 
building trade skills. I had that. It. This is not what you think it is. It's not these ones you see at the Trump rallies. These are a lot of educated people work because they couldn't find jobs in their field that paid the kind of money the mills paid. That's a myth, and that's the thing the Republicans and the Democrats get wrong. The Republicans just don't give a shit, but the Democrats always go with this education and skills. Well, when they closed up the mills here in Beaver County, they went into a bar, and they, there was guys sitting around, and they said, what do you think about this plan about the uh, re- retraining? And he says, well, that's nice. Well, I'm sitting here. I have four years of college. That guy over there has a master's degree. This guy's skilled in this skill and that skill. It's not the problem that there's not enough skills, and this is where the whole country doesn't get it right. There's not enough jobs in the skills and educated. It's the system is saturated with educated people, but yet we claim we have to get people from overseas. We have smart people here, but we never do that because it's cheaper to get people overseas, which that's a whole different other argument. But that, that's the thing that really gets me about this baluk hauler, which I hate the term, because these are people that are that, – yeah, they take a shower if they go to work every day. Yeah, that's true. But it's these are educated people that work in these places. It's not all these people. That's all they can do. I've heard that all my life. Okay. They can do plenty of things. The jobs aren't there. And anybody that says they are, they're full of, you know what, because that is not true. Okay. Thank you for that. Yep. Okay. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Uh, speaking of uh, the guest he was talking about, that was uh, Joe Pivo, who popped up on uh, Friday and got a pretty damn good reception. Um, um, Joe got in touch with me today, and uh, it, we might have him back later this week because he's off again. I mean, he usually can't come on because he's working. Uh, for some reason, he's off this week. And uh, so maybe we'll have him back talk a little bit more. I'd I'd like to have sort of a monthly regular (laughs) uh, appearance because his is a a voice um, that, yes, I think uh, is important. And and as our caller said, uh, we carry around these, um, these cartoon images um in our heads and it, it, these cartoon images we carry keep us from i think moving forward i have been i'm embarrassed uh because uh, Gigi, and i thank you um has sent me an article i'm pretty much right about daniel ortega but i got the country wrong why did i want him in el salvador he is nicaragua so noriega was the right thing to bring me to him um Anyway, uh, she sent me a BBC article which says, uh, as a leader of the left-wing Sandinista revolution, he was credited with bringing down a dictator. And then the American-sponsored rebels um, and we lefty types were definitely on his side in opposition to our own government who... This was during the Reagan era, again, if my memory serves me right. Um, And uh, this article says that, you know, now, four decades later, he is now serving his third term as the president of Nicaragua. And uh, huge protests against his government have... uh, led to just hundreds and hundreds of deaths. This is These are the articles I keep seeing. And uh, the people in the streets <laughs> are um, people who say he is nothing more than just another corrupt and authoritarian ruler. And he has come to resemble the very dictator that he deposed and uh, it is ugliness there. And he is hanging on to power like the good authoritarian that he is. Daniel Ortega. So what do, what are the what are the lefties who and you know I, I I'll count myself among the I just you know we get our information from certain people and 
he was Reagan. I mean, he was then, it seems, like a good guy. But uh, maybe he's just another indicator that um, when given power, whether people come from the left or the right, they often go bad and go bad fast. That power is so extraordinarily corruptive. Anyway, so Daniel Ortega has gone from uh, hero to absolute uh, nemesis and enemy, except I don't hear American lefties ever talking about him. They say sort of like, you know, oh, never mind, moving on. <laughs> never mind. Same with Cesar Chavez and what he did to Venezuela. Seriously, guys. Give me a friggin' break. So, uh, yeah, the true left often, when it gets power, becomes as noxious as the right wing when it gets power. Desires total control. So, it's about human nature, I guess. Am I annoying a lot of uh, my cohort here? I hope not, because we do have to be able to own um, our uh, reality. I mean, just we have to own reality. I also want to I want to tell you about something that also w might come as a shock, and it's something I've been sort of not kind of aware of. Kept hearing things, and then. And then this happened. Uh, and what this is, is the New York Times book review. The New York Times book review has this thing where uh, in each issue they have an interview with a, uh, a person of note, usually an, an author, somebody who's written books, and they ask him all kinds of questions, and a, a, a regular question is, what is on your bedside table now? You know, like, what, besides, you know, the Xanax. Uh, what are you reading? And I always find this feature interesting to see what people I read are themselves reading. And a few weeks ago, the um, author who was featured was Alice Walker, who is a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, uh, novelist. Uh, the, the book that most of us know her from is The Color Purple, which, as you know, was uh, made into a, a movie, and that launched uh, Oprah Winfrey's another whole career for her when it turned out she was a very capable actress on top of all her many talents. Uh, Alice Walker said that one of the books on her table was And the Truth <coughs> Will Set You Free. Um, and my, I did think, what? Because I'm aware of that book, and the truth shall set you free. It is a book by a British author whose name is David Icke. And Let me tell you about that book. The reason I'm aware of it is because it is just an anti-Semitic... <laughs> it's, it's breathtakingly anti-Semitic. And the author, David Icke, uh, gets his ideas from that, you know, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was some made-up, uh, conspiracy theorist's book back in Tsarist Russia, which has, which continues a hundred years later to 
have great power. And this guy repackages all of that shit. And um, the shit being specifically that Jews are responsible for uh, for organizing all of the things that have befallen them so that Jews are actually behind whatever that Holocaust thing was. He is a Holocaust denier. He uh, also says Jews control the world and that they organize anti-Semitic attacks on themselves. Uh, he has, in other writings, suggested that a cabal of a child sacrificing... Oh, that again. See, we Jews, apparently, we kill little Christian babies and we drain their blood. And that's how we make our matzah. You want the recipe? I can certainly, I'll post it. We'll post it. A cabal of child-sacrificing, bloodthirsty, lizard people. I'm not kidding you. That Many of whom are Jews, are secretly running the world. Now you would think, this is insanity, right? No, Alice Walker, beloved Pulitzer Prize-winning social justice activist loves this guy. And that's what's on her bedside table. And so when that bit ran uh, and Alice Walker told us what was on her bedside table, I mean, people freaked. Mostly Jews of course. And they said to the New York Times, what the fuck? Why would you put that? People will say, oh, Alice Walker, she's reading what? I'll have to go pick that up and read it too. That there was nothing suggesting that this book was this just blatant anti-Jew diatribe. And so Alice Walker was questioned and asked, what are, you, you, what are you reading him? Are you kidding me? And she said this. This is after this ran and people, Jews, freaked out. She said this. I do believe he, the author, I do believe he's, he's brave brave enough to ask the questions others fear to ask and to speak his own understanding of the truth wherever it might lead. That is what Alice Walker said when asked why she is reading this unbelievable, unabashed crap at a time when anti-Semitism is again percolating. It's on the rise. We in Pittsburgh don't have to be told about it. It's in Europe. It's everywhere. And now a beloved and revered and looked up to black woman author is singing the praises of one of the peddlers of the worst of it. By the way, another book that she said was on her table was The Road of Lost Innocence. And that's a book about sex trafficking in Cambodia. And that book interestingly enough, has also been discredited for years uh, because it has been proven that the author of that had fabricated uh, parts of the story. Anyway, uh, I, Alice Walker is an anti-Semite. 
okay? I just want to say that. And she's just an extraordinarily bold, unapologetic anti-Semite. And I just bring it to your attention because I think it's important to know. <laughs> and it, it can be like disconcerting that someone who is a vocal feminist and has done all kinds of good work on the on social justice issues, again, on the left, is, I mean, just uh, that she would promote this. It's like promoting I mean, the worst, it's not subtle. It's promoting the worst, the craziest kind of anti-Semitism. Knowledge is a bitch. Thank you. Amy has reminded me that I said, remind me, that I was talking about a friend. We were talking about cash. And we were talking about this thing that I started doing when I used to frequent uh, fast food joints. I don't do it as much anymore, although I really am trying not to since I've lost my weight and stuff. But one of the things that I would do because I can is if I, you know, I pay with a 20. And then when they give you the cash, the change, I just love saying, no, keep it. <laughs> and And then just moving on. Because I figure that would, you know, that's like a nice thing to do the whatever it is, uh, $14, 12 bucks, whatever it is to me, believe me, I can do, I, I don't need it. And I think those jobs don't pay much at all. And the young people or older people that are taking, you know, I just think, yeah, here, have at least this hour, let you have a affordable, livable wage. And it makes you feel good when you do stuff like that. You know, you don't wait for a thank you or a no-no or a this or that. You just, you know, then move on. And I had told her I did that. And then she said that she was telling me that she had started to do it. And how it really did make her happy. She said, it's just amazing how that makes you feel good. I said, yeah, yeah well, you know, we're lucky that we can, we have the money to share. So many people don't. And um, she said, but you know, I'm not doing it. I want, it sh she was saying that she isn't doing it because now if she goes through a drive-thru, she gives them a credit card. And I said, you pay with a credit card at a drive-thru? I, I said, I mean, I know people do, but she said, yeah, I don't even carry, I have no cash ever. She said, so, you know, when you're walking on the street and there's maybe somebody who's begging, let's call it what it is, for some spare change, some money, she says, I never have any. Sometimes I feel like I want to give it to them, but I don't have cash. And so we started thinking about how that, the fact that a lot of people don't carry cash anymore how that does impact poor people. <laughs> the guys who don't have plastic. And then, I, I read this thing, I forgot where, oh, the Wall Street Journal. This whole article about people are bumping into situations where they try to pay in cash 
and are told we don't accept cash. That there are, there are even some Starbucks, apparently, that don't accept cash. Um, and, you know, think about it. Young people often don't have cash. They have a debit card, usually, even more than a credit card. They got a debit card. Increasingly, people are not carrying money. And retailers are starting to like it because they say transactions are faster. Without it, their people don't have to make change. They don't have to run to the banks. They... Um, it's just better all the way around, a cashless society. But I would think not for the people who have jobs where they rely on cash. <laughs> so what's going to happen to them? The people that you do tip in cash, because we're clearly heading into a cashless society. And stop and think. If you pull out a, a, a you know, a U.S. Uh, dollar bill, okay, and these words are printed on it. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. That's what it says right there on your money. But, get this, a business can still say, well, it might say that on that bill, but we're not, uh, we're not accepting that. We want plastic. And do you know there is no federal law, none, that says that businesses have to accept cash? None. And there is only one state of the union that mandates that cash must be accepted and that's Massachusetts. Uh, there are some efforts in other states to pass le similar legislation because I guess this is starting to bubble up. Um, there's an effort in New York City by their council also in Philly in big cities where people, people's lifestyles are such that they operate in cash. And those are the poorer people. And they will be made poorer as the rest of us stop carrying cash. Interesting. So there's people over there on Grand Street right now amassing. And they're all there because they want the right to carry their guns. And that is mandated in our Constitution. But it isn't mandated that you got to carry cash or that retailers have to accept it. Uh, only... Just a few other little facts here, just so you know where we're going. Only 30% of commercial transactions in this country now are handled in cash. Only 30%. So that's me at the drive-thru. And I still use cash. I do. I often will pay in restaurants in cash. Because I know wait staff, they like people who live by tips like cash. Let me tell you. Um, so I guess hard currency is, is definitely, I mean, it's, it's on its uh, way, way out. A hard cur currency can be counterfeited. Uh, if you deal in cash, you still got to, you know, try to 
um, balance out your cash drawer at the end of a day. You wouldn't have to do that anymore. The, uh, for, for the commercial establishments, there are definite uh, positives. But um, I'm thinking about the maids in hotels. I'm thinking about the doormen. I'm thinking about the valets. I'm thinking about, yeah, waiters and waitresses. I'm thinking about street musicians. I mean, people who you give cash to. That's how they make their living. And increasingly, more and more people aren't even carrying it. So it's not even a possibility that they can give. The Salvation Army bucket people. Eh? That'll be gone. So, just something to, I don't know, ponder. Also, this sense of, uh, I've been very troubled by, by this. They've uncovered uh, another uh, effort to hoodwink voters um, in, in Alabama. And th this is uh, an effort that was promulgated by uh, Democrats. You know, used to be if someone was playing, you know, dirty tricks like that, um, it was Russians or Republicans. And now they are uncovering the same kind of crap. This is stuff on Facebook that is an effort to mislead voters. So Democrats posing as conservative Republicans trying to split the Republican vote. And, and you know what? It's, there's no laws against it. Again, so our legal system has not caught up with technology, social media, reality. And it's very unsettling if Democrats start playing the same despicable games as Republicans. And I know what they'll say is, hey man, uh, we're supposed to fight them with one hand tied behind our back. We fight with the Queensbury rules and they do anything they damn well want. I don't know. We have a call. Hello, caller. Hello, Len. Yeah. Um, uh, I talked to you a few weeks ago, you and your sister both. Um, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, what you were saying about us uh, becoming a cashless society it just uh, it harkens to mind all the uh, failed legislative efforts so far to implement like a public banking system. The last the, the last failed effort having uh, tried to occur in uh, Los Angeles. I don't even voted down. Yeah, what would that be? I don't understand and, uh, what that is. What what would that be? Uh, apparently, it would be. It would, from what I understand, and I'm I'm far from an expert on this. Uh, you'd have to talk to someone like Richard Wolf, who uh, talks about how North Dakota has had a public banking system in the state for well over almost over a hundred years. From what I understand, that it's based, it's run by the it's run by the state, and it's publicly it's publicly run and it's uh, available to the public. Uh, it's more democratic that way. You don't have all these. Apparently, you don't have all these restrictions. Like if you use a debit card and try to extract money from, uh, you know, if you have uh, Key Bank or Keystone Bank, yeah. whatever they are now, yeah, yeah, yeah. First Niagara, and you try to go to PNC and you have a three dollar surcharge yeah. for trying to get money that you yourself worked your ass off to, uh, you know, acquire. Uh, in addition to all the other inconsistencies that abound with the banking system that we have now, uh, <laughs> consumer banking system that we have now. Um, you know, there were also uh, talks about um, implementing a public banking system that was that would have been uh, that would have shared uh, 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 um, ownership with uh, the post office. From what I understand, there was a guy on C-SPAN a few years ago that I listened to on the Washington Journal who went into great detail about this, but I only remember about 10% of what I <laughs> what I watched. 
and uh, um, you know, there's also I don't know if you can see the uh, comments on YouTube. YouTube has like this comment page you can write chats on. I made a message uh, where I basically said it's time to implement Alexander Hamilton's. You were referring to the uh, um, yeah. Broadway musical mm -hmm. earlier in your program. Right. Alexander Hamilton's dream to implement a state run and uh, sponsored national bank. Bank, right. I think the man was ahead of his time by about like 200 years. I think he was ahead of his time because, you know, now well, yeah. more than ever we need that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so funny people flocking to that musical here when this was the hotbed of anti-Hamiltonism here in uh, western Pennsylvania. It was what the Whiskey Rebellion was. was a Did not know that, but I'm not surprised. Well, it was a direct result of, of Hamilton's... Uh, you know, trying to ta uh, uh, raise revenue as uh, Secretary yeah. of the Treasury, right? So, <laughs> oh, we didn't like no Hamilton here. Uh, so it's trying to undo the damages that were wrought on by the First Continental Congress. You know, I, I, <laughs> the older I get, the more I realize how, you know, genius that guy was. Okay, but I I need to know more. I don't know that much, but. Uh, Hey, thank you very much. Apparently, North Dakota. Uh, yeah. No, no problem. But apparently, North Dakota has had a public banking system, according to economist Richard huh. Wolf, for like over a hundred years, and they they have their own state-run bank over there. So fascinating. Yeah. You and me both. We need to look into this. Thank okay. You. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Appreciate it. Um. Hmm. Ed's telling me that Trish Beatty, who was uh, KDKA Radio, uh lives in Nicaragua now and might be interesting to talk to her since she's been living there for years. I vaguely remember uh, reading some stories about her. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll try to get in touch with her and see if she can give us a first-hand account um, of what's happening in uh, the Sandinista, Sandinista paradise of uh, Nicaragua. Uh, oh my. Another extraordinary person who rescued Jewish children has died. Those guys, they're gone. And he's 108. French guy, 108 years old. Loinger, Georges Loinger. I'm looking at a picture of him um, taken maybe 10 years ago. Man, he looked good for a... Jeez. Interesting. He would have been 98. Looks good. Anyway, 108, and my God, the stuff he did, it's just mind-blowing. The, the, the courage of some people. And the weird thing is, is he was a Jew himself who was still operating in France, Nazi-occupied France, and how the hell he was able to do it. They said he was blonde-haired and blue-eyed. That definitely would help. But um, he would take as many as 30, 40, 50 children and take them on the train take them on the train and they would get off the train at this little village near the Swiss border and the mayor of that village and some of the railway workers were also part of the resistance and so they would help facilitate this and he would be taking the children supposedly to a camp you know camp experience and so when the train would stop at this little station the kids who were all given false identifications and and these are kids whose parents had already been killed or were in concentration camps were gone so these are orphans and the people who were in on this would put up signs when they knew the kids were coming in uh, that said, this exit for campers. 
they and so the it looked totally legitimate and the kids would go in there and they would uh be fed and and uh, they would play games in there until nightfall and at nightfall they would be taken um into the forest and they would meet up with another resistance fighter who would get them to the barbed wire fence in between the countries and they would get them through the fence and they'd be handed off to another resistance fighter on the other end. So all of these people, from the mayor to the government workers to this now deceased man who is said to have rescued literally hundreds and hundreds of children by doing this and other um, pretty audacious things because once he's on the train with these 40, 50 kids and a bunch of German officers get on. He's on a train full of Jewish, he's got all these Jewish kids and there's these Nazi officers and he <laughs> he was asked by one of the Nazis, "What do you have? This is one guy and all these kids. You have all these kids with you." And he said, "Well, I'm. They are. Um, they certainly aren't Jews, but they are children who have been uh, living um, near Marseille." Uh, where there's been a lot of bombing and the kids are traumatized and we have organized this effort to take them away from that environment. So I'm taking them to camp. He was so scared that one of the kids would screw up somehow. But somehow on that train, the kids actually started playing with the German officers. And the German officers are giving the kids candy and laughing, and when the train comes to the station, where the signs have been put up, exit for campers this way, the uh, German officer had his soldiers escort the children off the train and they marched with the German soldiers singing from the station to the reception center. German officers, soldiers, helping <laughs> Jewish children escape. Anyway, so this this guy, 108 years old. He, by the way, was a cousin of the famed uh, mime, Marcel Marceau. And in fact, he looks a bit like him. And Marcel Marceau, you might not know, was also in the resistance. And he was often involved with this guy's efforts, and he would sometimes entertain the children to keep them relaxed. Marceau worked in the resistance until France's liberation. So anyway, yeah. But, of course, don't ask Alice Walker about any of that because she'll say it's fake news. Alice Walker will say that that is not true and that uh, courageous people know it is not true. All right, guys, I guess that's it. A strange one, to be sure. My sister, I think, will join us tomorrow from... She's now out in California, so she'll be complaining about getting up too early, but, you know, the heck with it. She doesn't have anything to do except go back to bed. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.
Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.